I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Glick. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2016. Coming up, a group of scientists unraveled the mystery of a methane hotspot over the Four Corners area. NOAA scientist Colm Sweeney will discuss the findings and implications. And continuing on a natural gas front, Christopher Clack, a scientist at NOAA and CU, CU Boulder, will share how he wears two hats as research scientist and citizen activist. begin with a brief look at some recent news in science. Scientists have known for a long time that life emerged from the primordial soup. But in case any of us need further proof that our human ancestors evolved from the sea millions of years ago, here's some new evidence. A team of scientists at the University of Chicago found in a recent study that our hands share an evolutionary link to fish fins. That may sound like some of the incredible records that Olympic swimmers just set in Brazil. The study was published last week in Nature. Can your car get infected by a computer virus? Well, in 2015, two researchers hacked a vehicle being driven by a journalist who documented how the hackers took control of everything from the car's radio and media console to its brakes and steering. Now, a researcher at the University of Arkansas and his student have created a security protocol to protect smart cars from hacking. The protocol adds a security layer around the car's internal network that requires an authentication code. As more self-driving cars appear on the technological horizon, it sounds like a good idea to ensure that hackers don't take the wheel. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Glick. More than a decade ago, scientists noted that the area where Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah meet, known as Four Corners, was emitting a curiously large amount of methane. This became known as the Four Corners Hotspot, and it took more than a decade for scientists to trace the source. More than 250 gas wells, storage tanks, pipelines, and processing plants associated with oil and gas development in the methane-rich San Juan Basin. The San Juan Basin is one of many places around the world where new drilling technologies, including horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, have propelled a boom in methane extraction. The boom has transformed U.S. energy mix. But critics say there are many unanswered questions about the unintended consequences of our embrace of natural gas, which is mostly composed of methane as a source of generating electricity. Joining us in the studio today is Colm Sweeney. He co-authored a recent report about the discovery of the source in this Four Corners hotspot. Colm is a lead scientist for NOAA's Earth System Research Lab aircraft program. He's also a research scientist with CERES, that's the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. Welcome to the show, Colm. Thank you for having me, Susan. Mm. Well, let's start with the basics, Colin. What were you looking for, and what did you find? Um, well, we, uh, we, this is uh, one of several studies that we're doing in the basin. Um, we were driven to the study first by an observation from satellite that showed that there was a, a major hotspot, as you described, uh, over the four corners, and that perplexed us a little bit because we've been doing uh, studies all over uh, the U.S. looking at basins and how natural gas 
emissions have changed or what the what what the emissions are and uh, we were interested in in what might be causing uh, this uh, em this signature that they were seeing from satellite and we wanted to really confirm whether the satellite was actually making uh, the measure you know was actually seeing methane or was it something else because we weren't seeing the same signal from the satellite in other basins and so we went there and uh, we found in the first study that was just published we uh, found a really interesting result which was that there indeed are a lot of methane sources there uh, not more than other places but uh, the interesting thing that we were able to derive from a uh, a basically a very fancy camera on a plane was that there was a uh, there's a lot of emissions coming from a few d uh, discrete sources. What that means is that the uh, that the you know if we want to reduce the emissions, it might be an easier task than if that uh, if the emissions were distributed over m multiple sources. So when you say from a few discrete sources, meaning just a few leaks here and there, or, or what? So there, there are, you know, we, in the study that we published, we, we saw 250 different leaks, leaking emissions, and that's uh, emissions that were above a certain threshold. So there's, there's emissions that, that we s probably, in, you know, there's a, a small amounts of methane being leaked uh, throughout the basin in both natural and industrial sources um, but these there's a few that are 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 larger than others and and in fact about 10 percent of the discrete sources uh, emitted more than 60 percent of the total emissions that we saw so that means that you only you know if you want to make a big dent in in reducing your emissions you really don't have to go to that many facilities uh, well maybe we could we could um expand a little bit on why these leaks, why methane matters. I mean, a lot of people have been obviously talking about carbon dioxide that's emitted as a byproduct of burning coal. What's the problem with methane and why should it, why should we care if it's leaking from anywhere? Right. So, you know, natural gas obviously is a very efficient and clean energy source as, as many people have told, told us. And so, but it's, natural gas is mainly methane and methane is a very strong greenhouse fat gas in fact when it comes out of the ground it's about 112 times more effective as a greenhouse gas than co2 um, fortunately methane uh, over time gets uh, gets degraded and and turns into co2 and so over a l long period it's it's not as as a b strong greenhouse gas but we're really concerned that the gains in burning uh, methane, I mean, uh, natural gas for electricity or in your, at your stovetop is going to actually, you know, improve things. But if you leak a lot of methane on the way in, in transferring from your well to your uh, electric plant, you, you lose that benefit. So their leaks are so-called fugitive emissions, and then what would you call intentional <laughs> flaring and such. So it, so it looks like your study didn't distinguish, and why is that important? Because, I mean, as anyone knows, driving I-70, at least a couple of years ago, it just looked like flares everywhere. And so the night lit up, and those were intentional flares, partly from excess, right? right. How is, are you suggesting that we should prevent, or they should prevent that? Well, the flares don't, uh, you know, the purpose of the flare is actually to turn the methane into CO2. 
So to turn it into a very potent greenhouse gas, turn it from a very potent greenhouse gas to a less potent greenhouse gas. So the flares themselves should not, if they're done right, should not be a source of, of methane. They should be a source of CO2. So that would be one thing. The, um, there are some intentional if you w if if you'll allow the phrase intentional leaks, but they you know um, the EPA is is putting in a lot of regulations to decrease what is termed sort of uh, allowed leakage. And what about regulations on the not allowed? I mean, all these leaks that you're right. seeing, the 250, are they? regulated and what should be done about them so you know so there's a lot of um you know and this is not something that's my expertise but i there's there's um a lot of effort to put in place a mechanism so you know one of the things that you know uh a, le a leak is it's a like a leak in a tire you know you you when you ride your bicycle, you expect over time you're going to eventually have a leak and and we expect most um systems that are you know, associated with natural gas that over time they're going to have they're going to develop leaks unless they are properly maintained and the better equipment you buy the better the flanges the better the uh connectors the less the leaks so you know th those are the type of regulations that are putting being put into place well, maybe uh you could help us get a sense of scale here um obviously methane's released from different agricultural practices from landfills, swamps, ocean seeps, melting permafrost, et cetera. How much is our natural gas boom contributing to the global methane budget, if you want to call it Ooh. that? Okay, the global methane, you know, it's actually a very small contributor to the uh, global methane budget. Um, and, and to the greenhouse gas budget, it's even smaller contribution. So globally, it's, you know, sort of on a a 10 to 20 percent level as far as methane goes um and in the united u.s it's probably about 30 percent um and but there's a lot more natural sources outside of the u.s that contribute i was struck earlier when you talked about the flaring as converting from methane to co2 and therein lies one of the big ironies it seems with a natural gas right. boom it was meant at least it looked like it that was the rhetoric and i think that was a lot of the belief in 2008 that this would be a bridge a bridge to somewhere cleaner um but what are the implications for climate change then based on what you're finding and what others are finding given that as you said methane is about 112 times more potent than co2 yes yeah, so there's you know there the um you know we th it, the importance of natural gas is uh, in in the, in the fact that it's better than coal and better than oil in in the, in the amount of CO two that you produce per energy unit. So uh, natural gas is almost twice as efficient as as something like coal. And so the question then becomes: if you start losing all this methane on the way to to your electric production, then you you see a reduction. And so the way we think about it sometimes is like there's been studies that have suggested that if if your leakage rate is any anything greater than three percent of your production, that you are are basically no better than um, a coal plant. Um, and what what would a coal plant be? And a well, so the coal plant is is gonna 
is going to be, uh, you know, is going to be producing a lot less efficiently, energy a lot less efficiently. And so you'd be producing a lot more CO2. And, and so you have negative effects that way. Yeah, I'm curious about besides the climate implications of, of what you're finding out, are, are there local health or safety concerns for the people in the Four Corners region? And perhaps more importantly, and we'll get to this in a second, for our listeners, are there implications from your study for people along the Front Range? Uh, so methane is not a poisonous gas. It doesn't have any direct uh, health implications itself. Um, in many cases, um, not really in the case of uh, the coal bed methane that we we're looking at has very few associated volatile organic carbons that we could see. So um, the but there are other uh, this that region uh, has is also uh, drills into oil and and gas um, that does have associated volatile organic carbons that can then affect ozone. They can, uh, there's, um, benzene has been, you know, documented as a co-emission uh, in, in gas wells and stuff like that. So there's, there's lots of room for, uh, for it to affect the safety of, of the people around. Um, but that's, that's something that we haven't covered in our study. And that's separate from, as you alluded to, the water issues. And we've covered yeah. a lot of that, and certainly that's not um, insignificant. So I'm taking a little station break. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran, and my host, uh, Daniel Glick, and I have been talking with Colm Sweeney. He's a scientist at NOAA who co-authored a recently published study. It found surprisingly high levels of methane emissions from natural gas production in the Four Corners region. And now we move from the air to the ground and much closer to home. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking is a highly controversial industrial process used to extract underground methane. It's a growing source of electricity production in this country. In Colorado, a boom in natural gas development over the past decade has raised questions about whether the environmental and human health impacts are outpacing scientists' ability to measure them. This fracking boom prompted many cities in Colorado to pass local laws that restrict new energy development, especially near schools and homes. But last May, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that those local laws are invalid. In response, citizen, gr citizen groups launched two fracking-related ballot initiatives that await verification from the Colorado Secretary of State. Whatever the fate of the initiatives, citizens are increasingly raising an important question that scientists are struggling to answer. That is, how safe is fracking in residential areas? And in fact, how safe is any oil and gas operation when it's close to homes? To explore this collision of rapid industrial development and rapid residential development, we're joined in the studio by Christopher Clack, our scientist who wears two hats. With one hat, Chris is a physicist and mathematician with Ceres, or the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences at CU Boulder. His work includes documenting how renewable resources, such as wind and solar, could supply most of the nation's electricity within 15 years. In fact, we had him on the show a few months ago on this topic. With his second hat, he's a Boulder County citizen with an interesting take on the fracking debate. He recently moved away from Decono, which is in Weld County and one of the most active areas of natural gas production in this part of Colorado. Welcome back to How on Earth, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, let's start with your citizen hat. Uh, 
can you tell us about your move from Decono? Uh, what prompted it, and where'd you move? Yeah, I, uh, so I started working at Ceres and NOAA and uh, got interested in uh, reading all the reports that were coming out um, on emissions from <coughs> hydraulic fracturing and, and oil and gas. Um, and then I wanted to delve a bit deeper and look into sort of more the health side of things um, because I kind of felt that I was getting ill and my wife, who works from home um, all the time, was, was also getting unwell. Um, and so... Uh, we looked into all the details, and it looked like it could be, it could be possible that it's from uh, these wells. And so we decided to move um, to where we could afford, which was um, Boulder County, but uh, Erie. Um, and a lot of our uh, illnesses went away, and, and was a lot better. And so um, we, it's it's a qualitative uh, data point for us, but it, it certainly had a, a bit big impact on us trying to find out more about what's going on and, and researching it more. Well, I think that's you're not an atmospheric chemist, but clearly you have a scientist's eye. And so when mm. you started looking into the literature, what were some of the things that jumped out at you? Well, a lot of things that, that jumped out to, to me was um, the, the VOCs that were being emitted from um, a lot of these condensed... The VOCs are volatile vo uh, organic, organic compounds or right. uh, carbons, yeah. And, um, and so when I looked into these and when you go and look at what these compounds are and... and how dangerous some of them are when when they're in high concentrations. You can you can kind of start to glean that if if it does build up locally into into higher proportions, they can they can have high mixing ratios and become um, dangerous in local local regions. And so, I really wanted to think about that and how close we were. And then when you bring up a map of how many uh, wells are around you and how many of the, are now hydraulically fractured, I think it's nine out of ten are. Um, that can build up if you if you get what's called an inversion that happens in Colorado quite regularly where the, the air doesn't move uh, around very much and so all these uh, compounds can build up locally. I'm curious just personally for you and your wife, what were some of the symptoms and have they been alleviated? Yeah, so I um, I, I, I constantly had a cold. Uh, my, my wife had runny noses a lot of the time. She started to um, form asthma, uh, which she had as a child, but then it came back when we were in Decano and when we left it, it, it dissipated. Um, and we can't attribute it all to oil and gas, of course. There's lots of other um, pollutants around uh, traffic and things like that that can can cause it. But it was a it was a, a remarkable decrease. And I even started getting nosebleeds, and I've never had a, a nosebleed. I've been in the army and all sorts of places around the world, and it was the first time that uh, happened. And it sounds like after you moved from Decono, you didn't exactly leave the fracking debate behind, and maybe not the health issues as well. No, so we uh, we moved to Boulder County because we um, knew there was a moratorium uh, in uh, unincorporated Boulder County, and where we moved to at the time was unincorporated, but uh, mostly my naivety um, of where we were building our new property um, was unincorporated when we moved there, but of course when the properties were built, it became incorporated into Erie, and Erie doesn't align itself with uh, the Boulder County regulations on oil and gas. And uh, nearby, we realized when we looked into all the fine print of our, our property, we found out there was likely to be an oil and gas facility within a few hundred feet of our house. And uh, how did that go over? <laughs> and so there's a, they've just uh, started construction of a Boulder Valley School District um, new elementary school uh, right next to where we live. And it all came to a head when we... Uh, found out the BVSD uh, might not build the school uh, on the location because it would have been within the 500 foot um, setback uh, regulations. Um, and it became a very difficult contentious issue because there was no um, drilling there at the time. Um, but um, the school was worried about it. 
Um, and uh, that's where we had to begin uh, discussing it with the community about how we might approach um, stopping oil and gas being developed there. Well, mm. and I would imagine many of your neighbors are also facing pretty similar threats. Yes, uh, um, and a lot of them um, wanted to have the school built and help fight, quote unquote, fight uh, the oil and gas being developed there. Um, but um, when you read the documents that you sign as a, a citizen, when you build in these areas, you, you pretty much sign away your rights to fight these things. And so that was the main contention the school had was it would be signing away a lot of its rights to stop the oil and gas uh, being drilled. But they um, came to an agreement that they would have us if they were to build there, which is a uh, hypothetical at this time, then it would be a certain type of pad and the um, it would be piped away to another location. And the school actually had to change its orientation to make sure that it was a, a certain distance away mm. um, but at the end they, they started building the school um, and there's still the proposition of, of being oil and gas um, in hmm. the local area. Uh, I'd like to bring Colin back in the conversation here uh, in a lot of ways some of the science around this boom is, is pretty nascent the public health impacts they're hard from an epidemiological mm. standpoint to really pinpoint and so a lot of people are concerned that the rate of development is happening so fast that scientists aren't able to understand the impact fast enough. I, I guess for you, Colm, what, what don't we know now and what would we like to know? And why don't we know it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I mean, I don't think we know. It, you know, I think it's, it's been pointed out, you know, there, there's connecting uh emissions to health is is a very it's a very difficult task and and um you know we we can look at these you know people getting sick and but you know you do have to for it to have uh impact in the policy making world we really need to have statistical proof that we you know that that there is a direct connection um certainly we know that benzene emissions and ozone uh, levels can impact people's health and you know your ability to recover from colds and stuff and that's that's something that's well documented and that's um, something that we've you know really looked at hard and and I think has had some impact in the front range that um, you know that that's really what's forced a lot of the um, legislation that has gone into place and that the oil companies are actually adopting in their practices to try to reduce emissions is and it's driven mostly by the health um, and less so by the uh, impact to uh, climate you know and so and I think you know so I think there's positive you know mm -hmm. things are moving in positive directions but you know communities are going to constantly you know the this it doesn't mean that the drilling is going to stop. And so communities are going to have to be on the watch. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that I always come back to is um, until we have an alternative, we, we need natural gas um, because we use it for such a large share. In fact, it's the largest producer of electricity now. It's overtaking coal. Um, and if we don't have something to replace it, then we're going to have to keep drilling for it because there's no, nothing else to, to do it. And we, we have to face up to the climate change problem as well as the local health problems. And I think science is slow. It's a <laughs> progression and we have to catch up with, with what's happening. And, and the problem is that our energy demands are outstripping our our uh, our pace of being able to catch up with the science. But, but let's let's go back to your, your scientist hat. And clearly your popped work... Popped it back on. Yeah, you popped your, your <laughs> scientist hat. And, and clearly your work has shown us that it's not this unachievable goal to, to get 
to make this bridge at least, uh, I guess, uh, some of the politicians saying at least let's make it as short as possible, this bridge. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, what we've, uh, in the study that we published that came out in Nature Climate Change and some uh, papers that are going to be coming out soon is we showed that you can get 80% of your energy from non-carbon sources. And that last 20% uh, comes from natural gas, and that last 20% is smaller as a share of um, natural gas than we than we use today. Um, so that reduces it. Um, as well, and what we show is with with all these different combinations, we actually get we we um, alleviate a lot of the local problems at the same time. So a lot of the extraction problems, a lot of the water problems that is, is strickening the West dissipate. It uses sixty five percent less water, so we have that for agriculture and other uses. Um, and just an interesting thing on flaring is we flare in the U.S. more energy in the natural gas than is needed in the entire continent of Africa. And so to sort of put those numbers into perspective, it's a, it's a, it's not a huge number of how much we use here in the US, but I think if we could use that uh, more wisely, or, or um, then it'd be valuable um, to, to capture it rather than just uh, releasing it. And Chris Clack of uh, series, I'm curious, uh, since you've had health issues yourself related to this, it's a bit of a cliche by now, but coal, coal miners used to put canaries in their underground tunnels because methane seep from the coal seams. The canaries died when there was too much methane and not enough oxygen. So now, where are the canaries? Well, I mean, I, I think um, we, we, need, we need some kind of dispatchable generation and until a, a miracle comes along with storage or a big transmission system that can go across the continent, uh, we need to really think as a, a nation about how carefully we want to extract uh, the emissions and how, uh, the, the fossil fuels that we, get, we are going to use because we are going to use them uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and if we can control how much we leak, um, then it, it will, will help us build that short bridge um, to the future. If, if, if we're leaking a lot, then the climate change problem is going to be hard to solve and local issues, health issues, are going to, I, I believe are going to start to show you're going to be harder to, to alleviate as well. Well, we'll be continuing. We'll have uh, plenty more on the health and environmental impacts and science behind it. So I want to thank you both. First, Colm Sweeney, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you, Christopher Clack. Thank you. It was fun. That was Colm Sweeney, the scientist at NOAA who co-authored the recent study um, about methane leaks in the uh, Four Corners region, and it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And we also had Christopher Clack, a physicist and mathematician at NOAA and Ceres. That's the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at CU Boulder. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Susan Moran. I also produce the show along with my co-host, Daniel Glick. It was engineered by Maeve Conran. And thanks to Joel Parker for some headline contributions. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Drifter. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Daniel Glick. And I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>